welcome, fellow traveller, to the Tent Talks podcast, where we fight bad ideas with good ideas. Join Dr. Stephen Backhouse and friends as we pursue the renewing of our theological, social, and political imagination. Hello, and welcome to the Tent Talk podcast. My name is Stephen Backhouse. When we started the Tent Talks podcast four years ago, we never thought we were going to start something that would last forever. We know that all good things come to an end, and in fact, the ending well is part of the goodness of it. So we didn't want to start something that was just going to limp along forever and ever. We've decided to bring Tent Talks to an end, in order to make way for whatever the new thing might be. In the last two weeks of the Last Word series... We have spoken to previous guests and hosts of the podcast, finding out their vision for their last word. Today, Sean McCoy, a longtime friend and central pillar of the Tent Talk podcast, is going to take over the episode. And here, we're going to hear from a new voice, one that we've never heard on the show before. Sean and his guests will help us think about and reflect on the temperature of the world today where we've come from, and what's in store for the future. Sean was one of the very first people I reached out to when I thought of starting the Tent Talk podcast, and I'm so glad that we're able to have his voice regularly on this show. He brings an ability to listen for understanding that I find admirable, and I've learned a lot from Sean over the years. I'm sure you'll get a lot from this episode. As always, if you have any comments or suggestions about what might happen in the future, do send me an email directly, stephen at tenttheology.com. Also, I should say that because the Tent Talks podcast is ending doesn't mean that the material is going away. We are keeping this feed open, and we will continue to make available all of the conversations and discussions and teaching episodes that we have been making for the last four years. These are all relevant today, perhaps even more so than ever, and they are not going away. I have also put a lot of material onto my website, tenttheology.com, and I've brought that from behind a paywall. There you will find hours of Bible teaching, lectures, and classes that I have held over the last few years, and I'm making them available to anyone who could find them useful or interesting. Tent Talks has been supported by patrons for the last four years, And the Patreon page is not ending either. Again, there are hours of information, extra bonus material, teachings, discussions, and the like on the Patreon page. And patrons of Tent Talks will have access to that for as long as we keep that patron page going. If you are a patron and you need to reduce your giving or end it altogether, then of course I understand and please don't feel bad at all. However, because we are keeping the podcast feed going and because we still have websites to maintain, there is a monthly fee that accrues for the Tent Talks endeavor. Any giving that you continue to give to Tent Talks will be used to keep these things going and to keep the material available for anyone who needs it. I look forward to hearing from you if you have any ideas and inspirations about the future. 
But until then, I hope you enjoy this talk with Sean McCoy. Hello, fellow travelers. It's uh, Sean McCoy, and I'm so excited as I have been the last three plus years to to have the opportunity to, to bring a guest, to bring a topic to all of you, our, our beloved listeners, as uh, one of our other fellow podcasters talks about. But that is in earnest because this will be my my final contribution as a host to this podcast. And I just want to say for a moment, take, a, take time to tell each one of you how much, and especially Stephen and Chris, how much I've been, I've learned, grown, and just been proud of uh, the work that we've done here. And that uh, I, it seems not too long ago, even though it's three plus years, that, that Stephen reached out and said, hey, would you mind helping me create a podcast? He'd been on my podcast and I'd heard him on some others and then it kind of connected in the podcasting world. And from that, uh, a friendship has grown, not only with him, but with Chris. And it was interesting because he had reached out to Chris as well. And Chris had been on my podcast and I had known him from before. And so it was really interesting that we all three kind of knew each other indirectly and didn't know it. And from that, we've established a great relationship. Um, it's It's been an absolute pleasure. I want each one of them to know how much it's meant to me. We've become friends, friend friends. We text and talk and have had many, many hours of conversations. And then all of you may not know, but we've actually never met in person. It's one of the funny things about this world is you connect with people and and you have this serious connection with them, but you've actually never met with them physically. Um, we we have had, a ch- I've had a chance to meet with some of the listeners in person because you are all very much part of this. Um, Tony Wallman, uh, his wife, Allison, his sister, Krissa, and her husband, John, they were all here in Houston uh, not too long ago, and I got a chance to meet them. And it was just such a, a just a just a wonderful experience to be able to do that. And so, in this world of podcasting, you get a, you get a chance to hear and talk and meet with people in real time. And it's just and I want all of you to know that we don't just consider you some sort of download, some sort of number next to a comma. Uh, we we take in earnest and and really really care about those that are listening and consider you part of this as well. And so it's a, and we're we're no better, we're no different. We just have to be at the other end of the of the of the uh, conversation. And so with that, I would encourage you, as I think you've heard us say before, uh, to, you know, we want to hear from you. We want to, you know, we want to know what you think. We want to hear uh, your thoughts and things of that nature. And, and then while this is coming to an end, this is part of the final say or final word uh, series. It's because there are seasons in life. And, and I definitely agree with Stephen. I like to go out well, you know, end it well. And, and it, while it may seem ironic to a lot of people that we would back out of a political theology podcast going into 2024, especially in the United States. At the same time, it, it is. I think it is. It's a good time to do this, and so we want to. We want to end this well, as I said. And and I've had a distinct pleasure of getting to know Rachel Howell, who's who I asked to be my final guest, through through a very very interesting and very personal experience. I was asked, and it took about a year at, to lead a pastor search team at a church that I used to attend, and her name came across uh, our table per, per se. And the 20 plus people 
um, multiple interviews, a lot of discernment. And from the very minute that I came across her and listened to what she had to say and started learning about Oliver, not just phenomenal uh, academic and educational background, but her personal experiences, which I'm sure she will get into, that uh, she became my favorite very quickly. And it wasn't, wasn't a lot of gray area to it because she, she sounded like us, if I'm being honest. And she knew all the same authors, the same people. She knew Stephen. And I kind of, there's a resonance there. There's a synergy that all of you, when, I, when, we, when I've met with Tony and his, and his, his family, when I've talked to others, um, they're just in this area. Like we're all kind of chewing the same dirt. And so I felt very strongly that, that, that not only was she there, but she also has this, it was a big reason I wanted to ask her to come on here was this, really beautiful way of helping, even though we're on the same journey, but helping myself and, and really being there for others in such a way to help them cultivate and, and reinforce what they're doing and help them understand what they're going through. And, and while at the same time, not deciding just to get completely out of the game and walk away, which is, I think is, a, is a, just a, something that she has that's a, a rare quality. And, and so, and I also felt like uh, the world, if you will, needed to kind of hear more of her. And, and, and more understanding of what she's been through and where she's going and what, and what motivates her. Because back to you, the listener, who which is why we do this show, could it give you a nugget? Could it give you something to consider? Could it give you someone's voice to hear to help you in those times where you're trying to figure out what you're going to do? Which is, I think, a big reason why you listen to this show, which is why Link, you listen to, Lee, to Stephen and Chris and all of our wonderful guests and Natasha and Shane Martin Allens who just got done doing a wonderful series. And so with that, Rachel, thank you so much for taking the time uh, to come on the show and glad that you're here. Thanks so much for having me. I'm looking forward to it. So in the spirit of that, I think uh, one of the areas that, that I've listened to a lot of your other stuff and, and I always get to talk to you personally, but I think it would be a good place. I think it'd be a good place to start to look at kind of your personal journey. Like, so just to give a little background for everybody else out there, I thought it was a really interesting to give all of you, because we, we hear in you know, a Western evangelical church, we talk about that, especially in the United States, we see a lot of that, you know, the undercurrents that both uh, direct and indirect coming from, especially on the political side right now in the United States, there's this impression that anybody who's from from America, let alone from Texas, like you and I are both, grew up out here that, you know, it's just about, you know, it's about guns and violence and discrimination and we don't like anybody and everybody's, you know, just, you know, just a moment away from just blazing, you know, a path of violence and destruction and hate and all the rest of stuff that we see kind of amplified out in the in the media, if you will. And so I thought it was really good to get a chance to talk to somebody who's who grew up in, like I did, but definitely much more in the church world than I ever did. You did, and give you a chance to kind of you know what that really looks like on you know in on the other side, if you will. So if you wouldn't mind, kind of give us an idea on your personal story and from a faith religious background, where you grew up and how, and then that big D word that we like and don't like and kind of go from there. <laughs> I appreciate that. We, um, I grew up in church and um, I often, when I look back, I think I was loved well and um, I don't, I don't hold that lightly. I know that is not a gift that everyone gets. And so my parents they loved me well and they modeled learning and they also modeled a love for church in the healthiest version of what that word can mean a, a group of people that is trying to follow Jesus together and but they also modeled learning at the same time the congregation that i grew up in 
and the denomination or heritage that we grew up in was known for being conservative. And depending on which congregation you're bumping up against within this denomination, um, it might feel more fundamentalist or it might feel more uh, evangelical. And so I'm talking about like late 70s, early 80s. But the congregation that I grew up in within that larger movement was already trying to unlearn some of what they were starting to name of wrong ideas from the gener- one or two generations before that. There was a lot of talk among the adults in my church about the legalism, you know, of the previous generation and how they really wanted to uh, figure out like the grace of God. And so there was kind of a narrative of unlearning and relearning in the water as I was growing up. At the same time, my parents were um, modeling a commitment to these people like family. Church was extended family for us. You know, we took care of each other when someone got cancer or when someone's marriage ended, you know, um, very much took care of each other. But also my parents were were asking hard questions that made some other people uncomfortable in my childhood. You know, I didn't pay that much attention to it as a child. I knew it was happening, but I have come to now really value that, that they were modeling that for me. And because now I think it's pretty rare to be able to ask hard questions that make other people uncomfortable. And so that was part of my uh, upbringing. Um, I felt empowered to wrestle with questions. And sometimes I felt empowered to ask those questions. I didn't always feel comfortable asking those questions. And so this particular uh, church family, this denomination is known in some ways for thinking they're the only ones who have God exactly right. Or, you know, some people would say they thought they were the only ones going to heaven. You know, those kinds of phrases would, would float around. But I definitely, um, I didn't grow up with the harshest versions of those phrases, but I definitely picked up on this idea that the people in our group, we definitely thought we were a little writer than everyone else. And again, like I'm aware because I've heard other people's stories from within this group that there were other congregations where that was coming across in a harsher way. Um, And so I'm grateful that I didn't have that. And so when I started in high school, realizing I don't think we're the rightest ones and wrestling with why some of my friends from other uh, denominations seem to model a kindness that I wanted and that maybe I wasn't seeing in my church. I thought, well, we can't be the rightest if there's better fruit, you know, in, in these other groups sometimes. But like I had been trying to think that way. And so, you know, as a teenager, the next thought was, well, then I need to go find out, find the group that is the right one who does have it right. And, and then eventually, obviously, getting into adulthood and realizing there is no one group that has it all right. And so uh, that led me through, uh, carried me through with my questions through high school and even college. Um, there are several big parts of faith that I was wrestling with, but somehow not walking away just yet. I did go to a Christian university associated with that denomination. And that also is part of the trajectory of of actually asking more questions, even though 
that university does have a conservative reputation um, and is not known for being a safe place to ask questions, it still does provide the opportunity for a lot of young people to wrestle with questions that they didn't wrestle with in their home churches. That just continued the, the having permission or, or mild permission to start to wrestle with questions. For me, during high school and college, it was actually of um, a question questions about uh, Jesus, but that also have more to do with interpreting the Bible and and also understanding how being raised in one church family will affect how I approach Jesus. And so I felt unfamiliar with Jesus in high school and college. And I felt like I'd gotten a lot of God and a lot of Paul and a lot of the Bible as far as like what was emphasized, but actually found this really uncomfortable uh, experience of uh, being in my early twenties and thinking of, yeah, I'm kind of like a poster child for like a church kid, a kid raised in church. Why do I feel so unfamiliar with Jesus? And so that was actually the earliest part of my searching of feeling uh, maybe a little embarrassed, but also just confused. Like this doesn't make sense. And then uh, even in college, like starting to read some books outside of my particular heritage that raised me and starting to read books and realizing there are other people saying this. There are other people in other groups who are saying, yes, uh, multiple churches have emphasized Paul over Jesus. And so starting to have these early experiences of like, I'm not crazy. Other people have had this experience. So, And then that came along with it. So it's not just me. It's not just something wrong with me. And so by, you know, early 20s had was experiencing what I can now say was like steadily and slowly increasing empowerment to, to ask hard questions and not have them resolved right away. And again, I also think the fact that my parents loved me well is part of what allows me to tolerate months or years of a really hard question and not feel like I'm unloved. Um, and I, I really do think that is part of my story. And so um, we my my husband that I got to know in college and some other friends that we were getting connected with were sensing a calling or leading or an interest in, in ministry and maybe ministry overseas. And so that was part of our journey and part of our training. We in our we had classes, you know, in anthropology um, in college. Um and classes on missions. And um, those were actually, I think for, this would be the late nineties. Those were actually, I think a lot of things at that university are behind the times, but that was the, our missions classes and our anthropology classes, I think were, were actually not behind. And so um, our preparation to be cross-cultural ministers living overseas was actually good. And, um, and so we joined this team to go do mission work overseas. And so to locate this, this is late 90s and early 2000s. Uh, we're preparing to move overseas. I was a nurse, uh, a registered nurse at the time, had not really gotten into theology formally yet. We prepare to move overseas. So we um, we already knew 
So again, uh, what I'm describing right now is like, I'm trying to locate us on a timeline. We already knew that like proselytizing and door knocking and, you know, have a big gospel meeting and baptize a hundred people, you know, that we already knew that was old school and that was not what we were going to do. We already knew as a whole team that we were more interested in participating with groups of people who actually want to be, have life transformation and model their whole lives after uh, Jesus, learn how to actually follow Jesus with their whole lives and with like their neighbors. That was already in place. Um, You know, we still did obviously participate in baptisms. There were baptisms, there were numbers, there were churches planted. But that is one thing when I look back on my story that I'm super grateful for. This was never, from the beginning, was never like an effort to let go uh, proselytize or force people who weren't interested to like declare allegiance or switch religions or something like that. We, we only worked with people who were already interested as we lived overseas. I'm really grateful for that piece as well. Uh, I hope that wasn't too long. That's the lead in um, <laughs> to my, well, <laughs> this uh, part of my story. I was going to ask if you don't mind, just for clarification for those who are listening. So when you talk about the denomination itself, I mean, do you mind naming it? Do you mind like telling them? No, I don't mind. I've been, I was raised within churches of Christ, <laughs> which is, you know, from the historical standpoint, it's part of the Stone Campbell movement that now consists of churches of Christ, Christian churches and disciples of Christ. Uh, I can have the, the structure, the social structure, the history conversation, you know, um, another time, but. Um, so, so I think just to give the listeners a little perspective and correct me if I'm wrong, Rachel, but. So a lot of times in the United States, you hear about like the Southern Baptist Convention. Of course, we have like Lutheran, United Methodist, and those are more, they have a formal organization that has like a central group that kind of dictates what happens out in the world that you're going to call yourself a Methodist church or, a, or an SBC. You kind of adhere to those those rules or the, or the churches of Christ were decentralized. So you had these autonomous groups that kind of had this idea around, you know, doctrine and theology that were... It came from a kind of a single place, but you kind of got your chance. You had your own opportunities within the context of the actual physical church, that one organization to decide to what degree you wanted to to make those things happen. You're right. And so like, yeah, the distinctives that are different about that uh, group are the, the autonomous structure without like, like a central headquarters. Um, that group has all, always emphasized adult baptism as like the conversion event and also has emphasized acapella music instead of having instruments and has also uh, emphasized patriarchy and not empowering women. And so, and also like weekly communion. That's like a super short summary. And um, because there's no central headquarters, there's a lot of variety from congregation to congregation. Some of them, if you just walked in and didn't know anybody, would feel more fundamentalist. If you walked in, some of them would feel more evangelical. Some of them are going to, if you ask them about weekly uh, Eucharist or Lord's Supper, and you ask them about um, adult baptism, some congregations would explain that in a way that it made it sound like these were rules that were beamed down from God 2,000 years ago. But other congregations, if you walk in and ask about you know, weekly communion and adult baptism, they're going to have an answer that sounds more like 
pastoral and uh, sacramental. Like these are beautiful things that have been, you know, passed down uh, for 2000 years through the church. So um, there is a lot of variety between uh, congregations. I'm, I'm grateful that at one point, this is a long time ago, before the word evangelical was so political, um, a long time ago, I referenced my upbringing as more evangelical than fundamentalist. And my parents just kind of, they started chuckling, but in this way that was like expressed a lot of relief that could, because what they had experienced when they were younger was like the stricter, maybe a little more harsh version. And, and I didn't get that. And so there was movement between the generations. And so, um, but obviously that word now is evangelical is very political, but um, a big part of my story is uh, involves living in another culture and we had been trained in our missions classes in anthropology and we had been trained that it is like inappropriate to go into another culture and force your vision of anything on, onto another uh, group of people. We were trained to go and learn language and learn culture, you know, for at least two years kind of thing so that you're going as a learner. Um, and that was emphasized so much. That is one of the most important things that I got out of, you know, all my classes at this four-year university is to go as a learner. And, and I think that's actually, you know, I, I am a learner. That's who I am. And so that fit well, and it gave me tools to really do that. And so because part of that is that it would be inappropriate to move to another country, be a cross-cultural minister, helping uh, encourage people who are following Jesus, helping them plant churches. It would be in a, the part that would be inappropriate is if those churches end up looking like American churches because I'm there participating in the process. That would be wrong and sad. Um, you know, if you move to another country and participate in that kind of ministry, it needs to look like uh, the people there started that church. It needs to be theirs. There needs to be local leadership and local ownership from the beginning. And so this is, you know, a summary of, of stuff that was really emphasized in our training. Um, and we took them seriously. We did our best to do that. And um, we came, uh, we lived in Mozambique for 15 years. We lived in a really, really rural area where there weren't very many churches at all of any flavor. And there were some, it was not zero, but there weren't very many at all. And so we moved uh, into that area and got to start learning language and culture. And I could tell a lot of stories about that ministry. Um, but when it comes to um, my own faith and deconstruction and reconstruction and uh, unlearning and relearning, I could actually point to a scenario where we had to go to Portugal for nine months to learn Portuguese um, because Mozambique is a former Portuguese colony. So Portuguese is the national language. So to go to the bank, to go to the immigration office, you have to do all that work in Portuguese. So we're in Portugal uh, for nine months. And that is when I read Brian McLaren's book, A New Kind of Christian. And so that's like one of the major markers in my story. And it just rattled all the pillars of, of my foundation. And I have gone back, you know, later and reread that book and just went, laughed with joy at this doesn't seem complicated anymore, but that was a big marker, even though 
I think there were already things online in my brain and my heart that were uh, had me ready for this event. It, that was really the first um, main event that rattled a lot of faith pillars for me. So with the hindsight perspective that I have now, I can tell you that what that book does, which to me is masterful, he he writes that book as if it's a narrative, a story, because, you know, it just makes it easier to read. But what that book does is question a lot of, I think, like epistemology um, that comes out of the Enlightenment. We were taught in a lot of these conservative churches that the point of everything is salvation and the point of everything is certainty. And that book, what it did was rattle all the pillars of the foundation of a need for certainty. What was amazing to me in that, when I look back at that story after it felt like foundations had been shaken, it felt very much like a loss of language. I remember talking in, this is in 2003, my language for God is gone. And that's a terrible feeling when you're already employed as a minister and you're in like the first year of something you're hoping will be 10 or 15 years long. That's so scary. In my experience, it did not feel like God was gone. That to me at the time was such a mystery. I just had this sense of this presence that God was still there, but what was gone was my language. And what was gone was also that feeling of certainty about everything. Uh, It was jarring. It was just, it felt disruptive. It was scary, but somehow uh, I sensed that God was still there. And so moving forward, um, a lot is going on in these two or three years after that, but I had to wait two or three years until I finally kind of got the next step uh, in that waiting journey. And the way that happened for me was reading Divine Conspiracy by Dallas Willard. And what that did for me was it centered Jesus in the story in a way that Jesus had never been centered in the story for me. I grew up in church, right? And these churches say they're all about Jesus. But that was where I really felt like Jesus truly became the center of what I would eventually maybe be able to call a faith again. And he says in that book, you know, my goal in this book is to uh, gain a second hearing for Jesus. And, And that is how I experienced it. But it felt like almost as if it were for the first time. Um, and part of the gift of that resource, which is, you know, not none of these books that I might mention in the syllabus of, of Rachel's life. Um, you know, none of them are perfect. None of those authors are perfect at all. I don't, I don't want to be heard saying that, you know, they hung the moon or anything. It centers Jesus, but especially in his kingdom message, which, you know, going back to the Gospels is what Jesus does center is messages about the kingdom, but especially the Sermon on the Mount. And so I lost a foundation of evangelical certainty, but what I got back eventually was a foundation of this unbelievable kingdom invitation with, you know, from Jesus as it comes to us through the gospel writers, the Sermon on the Mount and letting that become my lens for Jesus, letting Jesus's invitation to the kingdom 
in the Sermon on the Mount become my lens for everything else. Uh, that was chronologically in my story, um, what happened next, but I had to kind of wait with my questions for, for over a year. So very slowly, and this was while we were doing our language learning and culture learning and um, which is so slow and so humbling because to do our ministry, we had to learn two languages um, to do that well. And so while we're meeting our neighbors, while we're getting to know people and lots of other things are happening, lots of other crazy stories. And this was also uh, in our story, the first years of like having our first child and our second child. And so part of our story, my husband, Alan and I, is we were having all these hard conversations about uh, unlearning bad ideas about faith, relearning healthier, more robust ideas about uh, Jesus. We're having all these conversations in front of our kids. And so, you know, some of the earliest ones were when they were small and they probably weren't listening, but we continued to have these conversations in front of our children. And I'm super grateful for that now. So I would also... A few years later, this is probably 2009, and, and there's, I don't know, Alpha, I feel like my talking style is like a syllabus, as if I'm creating a syllabus for someone else, but like there are other books in between what I'm about to say next. So we kept reading. We, you know, there were years where, you know, as soon as Brian McLaren wrote another book, we read it because we had this sense of like, this is the direction we need to go to actually have meaningful faith for the next generation. But I would say the next major marker was reading Surprised by Hope by N.T. Wright. And so uh, Dallas Willard took me to Jesus uh, in the Gospels and especially the Sermon on the Mount uh, as the center of that foundation. But N.T. Wright gave me the resurrection in a way that had never been talked about in my childhood churches. And so that's another major piece that fell into place that should have been there from the beginning is um, centering the resurrection and what people were calling the good news after the, you know, the crucifixion of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus. So when you get into the epistles, the letters, the center of what gets called the good news has to do with resurrection. And that leads us to uh, what kind of story we're in. We're in a new creation story. That's about a six-year span of time that I've just summarized for you. A big part of what happens in that space emotionally is, um, for me, there's this tremendous joy. At the beginning, first reading the Brian McLaren book, um, I, I don't think I could call that joy, but there was increasing joy. Between 2003 and 2009, um, a slow, steady burn that was an increase and once I start meeting Jesus again and realizing that this whole story is different if we put resurrection at the center, I start this uh, experiencing this deep joy and also this profound sense of why have I never heard this? And, and so joy, but also a little bit of grief that I was raised in you know, what I thought was a good church, and I still think that, but this sense of confusion of why the religious authorities in, in my childhood and my young adulthood didn't present this to me this way. And so it comes with some grief. It comes with some confusion. As I have talked to people 
since then who are navigating their own version of unlearning and relearning, depending on what what their family of origin was like or, or what their childhood church was like. Um, a lot of people experience anger and a sense of betrayal because they feel like they were lied to. And so um, I hear that story from people all the time. And so I think that's part of when I look back at my own story, the fact like that, like my parents uh, loved me so well is why my, my particular version of it um, has not necessarily included anger at my childhood church, but that is such a common story. I don't know how, how prevalent this is in other denominations. And one of the things about my particular fellowship is a lot of congregations, a lot of preachers throughout multiple decades, we're only using resources from within that fellowship. That doesn't happen as much now for sure. But there are still churches where that is still the case, where they're only reading authors within that particular fellowship. And the problem with that is as soon as their members start reading theologians or biblical scholars outside of that fellowship, and it's good, and they start reading good resources um, outside of the fellowship, they do have to wrestle with this feeling of they've been lied to, or they've been kept in the dark on purpose. That feeling of, why did you keep this uh, from me? Why am I just now hearing this? Some people do really experience that as a sense of betrayal. And so that's not just in the past, in my story, um, that is still that is still happening um, in a lot of places. And I want to ask you. A, I want to ask you a question about that because I think it's it's poignant. I mean, so the so the table in a sense, small town girl grew up, you know, middle of Texas, and and I was I was kind of laughing earlier when you were talking about a cultural change. A lot of people might think that that's just going from College Station, Texas, down to Houston. It would be a big enough cultural change, or going from Texas to like California, New York would be a change. But you went all the way to Mozambique, and so it's like a true, you know, immersive like. Really, really, really different. And at the same time, you're having this uh, internal conflict or this growth, you know, that is recognizing these things. And that some of these idols, for lack of a better word, and I don't mean to say and I don't mean in a connotation, but it's these things that you believed in that you put your faith into outside of outside of just everything else. These are these are these symbols, and then they came crashing down. Uh, and so in amongst that that period, we were talking about this earlier a little bit, that that process of it's difficult. Like I don't, I don't, I don't have this identity anymore. I'm not sure. And so I, I looked for God and so I found God in my church or this doctrine and now I don't have it there anymore. For those that are in that moment like that, where did you see, you, you alluded to a little bit around your parents, I think definitely there and how they loved you and that became part of the reemphasis gave you some, some, some confidence, but where else did you see it in terms of seeing God at that moment when it's kind of like, well, it's not in my church anymore to the extent that you want to see it. I, this new information is coming in and not just another book. And look, I'm a book, I'm a, I'm a nerd like you. I love that stuff. But like where else? Like out in nature, out in the, is it music? Is it, uh, was it another group of people, faith, something else? What else out there did you, where did you see God outside of that? That kind of helped reemphasize some of that stuff. No, that's a great question. I think seeing God in other people is, is part of that. I also think that, for me personally, worship, like singing is really important to me to the extent that I don't have words for it. 
to describe it. I, I have words like when I sing songs, but another part of our story is as we were learning, unlearning, relearning ourselves into a bigger story, we were singing a lot because of the double language barrier for my kids. We were out in the community singing with people, worshiping in churches. My kids did not necessarily know enough of either of those languages to understand all the lyrics. So we sang a lot at home in English. And I just personally love, I just love to sing with other people. And so anytime we came up against lyrics in songs that reflected that old way of thinking about things, we would just change them. You can change them? Can you do that? Is that okay? (laughs) Yes, you can. And so we would either write new verses or we would write, you know, a new bridge to this song or we would rewrite old lyrics. And that to me is just like this huge untapped resource. I think because singing is something we do with our our minds and our hearts and our bodies, you know, as we breathe and sing and and it comes out of our mouths. Um, I think it's really transformative, but you joke because you're asking like, can you do that? But I have encountered so much resistance whenever I suggest that to people. There is, I think sometimes nostalgia maybe or allegiance to the version of that song that I grew up with. And and that is still a little bit of, it's mystifying to me, but maybe it shouldn't be mystifying if that is a primary way that humans signify their allegiance is what they sing songs to. (laughs) So maybe it shouldn't be surprising to me. So singing was a really important part of that. Definitely reading books. I have always been a journaler. And so writing has always been a really important part of this for me. Also blogs, um, you know, what is now, uh, you know, the podcast, the explosion in the podcast world um, in the era that I was wrestling with a lot of these questions, blogs were also where we were going for a lot of information. Rachel Held Evans I never got to meet her in person before she died. And so she doesn't know, but like, or maybe she knows now, but um, she was walking alongside me as, as she wrote um, the things that we were unlearning and relearning at the time. Being in the space of being a learner in another culture and being a guest in another culture in the best sense of the word, it can really keep you humble. And it was part of the joy of being in another culture. You know, at night, I'd be reading, you know, some uh, popular level theology and some really dense theological resources. But by day, I'm out there like trying to learn these two languages and, you know, I know what my background and training is, but you you can't learn a language without going through the intermediate stage of, you know, sounding like a seven-year-old. And, and so there's, I think, some really important work that is being done epistemologically, like how we learn, how we take in information, how we approach information and how we let information shape us, how we learn. I was continually being formed as a learner um, in some really delightful ways that were also keeping me really humble and also building inside of us this tremendous perseverance 
because you can't do it without committing years to this really long on-ramp. As I have looked back to the gifts of the being able to have a reconstruction phase of faith, to be able to like almost like surgically navigate, okay, I'm understanding this idea that was wrong. You know, it may have been taught to me with the best of intentions, but it was just wrong. And to try and understand it and learn it and almost surgically step around it. And, but then also find another, uh, you know, resource to reconstruct. Okay. The better view of, you know, what Jesus is doing in the gospel of Mark, the better view is this, you know, um, but I had the luxury of time to do that in a way that like there wasn't a time pressure. As I look back, I have realized that that was an important ingredient for me. I was allowed to hold my, some of my questions I held for a year. Some of my questions I held for five years. Some of my questions, I literally can tell you specific things that I held for 10 years, not knowing what to do with that question. Um, and now I realize that, that that is a luxury to have that time. Part of the gift of that was getting Jesus and kingdom in the gospels in, a, in a, a way of like reconstruction to where I could immediately take that into a ministry context. You know, Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount and this radical kingdom invitation. It is it is radical to suggest that you can learn to love your enemies. That is that is uh, offensive and radical and transformative in any culture. And so I was given that piece back pretty early. And then also just as crazy is centering the resurrection and real which that means that we are in a new creation story. I was also given that back pretty early and the um to actually be able to walk forward in ministry. Um, those two things to me, those are, that's good news. Even though um, as I was teaching and ministering and coming alongside people and empowering local leaders, those are both really good news. Even though some of my uh, unlearning questions were still unanswered and I was carrying my, my unanswered unlearning questions with me for years as I was walking with Jesus and the Sermon on the Mount, walking with resurrection and new creation in, in the letters and um, Paul's letters after that, that was a stretching time that was some of those questions literally is I'm talking about a 10 year gap of time during which I realized uh, I have this deep sense of responsibility. I now connect this back to being an Enneagram one I have a deep sense of responsibility. And so I was very aware that what I was teaching was like the gospel or the thing to the story that we're inviting people to join. I knew it was different than what I had been taught as a child to be responsible as a teacher. I needed to not just take Dallas Willard's word for it or N.T. Bright's word for it. But I needed to know 
to feel responsible as a teacher. I needed to know who they were in conversation with, who are the other scholars around them. They're saying, okay, yes, but, and so um, that was part of uh, my journey to go back in, in, uh, into higher ed and, and go get uh, first a master's degree in historical theology. I wanted to know the history of my ideas, the, the ideas that I had been handed as a child. I needed to learn the history of the particular ideas I had been given as a child in order to feel responsible about like letting them go, which that's a lot of work to go back to grad school just to have like permission uh, to preach a different gospel. next with Rachel is kind of building upon those things. So now that you've gone through all this stuff and you've you've done these things, what do you do with the Bible? What do you do with God? What do you do with reimagining, as we like to talk about here, what faith looks like on that other side when you've been exposed to not just the academics that you're talking about, but to real life people, which I think is really the part that starts to stir. Because it's one thing to argue an idea that you disagree with or to have an idea that's different than what you thought. But when that's embodying embodied literally and figuratively in a human being next to you, and then you and then you get to still see God there, it reminds me of a, a podcast I listened to on the for Nomad. I think it was Elaine. Uh, I forget her name now, but she she was she was tasked to go to, to Africa. She grew up. It was a, a, a CBE and was sent over there to you know to to bring God to the to the Africans. And then her her next line was, and I went there only to find out that God was already there. And that kind of thing. Exactly. <laughs> and so it's like, oh, what do I do with this? You know, what do I do? What do I do with this newfound perspective? And how do I engage? And especially with those that aren't there anymore, the people that we that we've known that we love. These are real human beings that have names and places in our lives. And now all of a sudden, we're at a fundamental difference around something that is for many many people is quite important around their faith. They had this certainty that you talked about last episode. Um, that is now no longer certain, and you're challenging that. You're, we've gone through that in a sense and understand the discomfort. But when you bring that discomfort to somebody else who isn't quite ready for it, it can be a bit, uh, it can be a bit jarring, and cause cause a conflict or two, as we have seen uh, both personally and you know, micro and macro. So, so in the spirit of that, you know, can reemphasize a little bit more if you want to some of the experiences you were having in Mozambique and how that helped shape you. But then when you started to engage with those that that aren't in the same place, um, you know, it, what, what do we do about that and how do we engage with that, especially coming into something like 2024 uh, or just, and I, and I have a feeling that even after 2024, it's still going to be a problem. So no matter when you listen to this, right. how, how do you handle, how do you handle when people that you care and love and, and, and concerned about, as you mentioned, being a teacher, uh, but aren't maybe necessarily in the same place as you? That's a great question. I think we are always dealing with 
big picture questions at the same time that we are engaging individual humans. You know, individual humans are always at the same time part of larger communities. And to be in ministry, I think, is to always be doing both, always be navigating uh, people's questions around faith, talking with an individual in front of me, I know that they are bringing their community with them and to change their minds about anything about faith has social implications. I used to get surprised by this, but I am no longer surprised by this. How many uh, conversations I would have with college students, but then also 30 somethings. And then sometimes 50-somethings, and then sometimes 70-somethings were talking about shifts in theology. And what I used to get surprised at was like, grandma pops up in the conversation. It could be grandma, it could be grandpa, some elderly relative who may be living or may no longer be living, but people's family connections pop up in the conversation. And usually that means, I think, that they have hit their limit for that conversation for that day about how much they can process. For so many people, for, you know, one person in front of me that I'm talking with, for them to change their mind about what God is like means that grandma might have been wrong. And and that used to surprise me, but it doesn't surprise me anymore. We are all connected to huge social networks of people that we may or may not agree with on faith. And so it's just, it's just real. And so the social implications, the fallout of what's going to happen in people's relationships, I think one, I, I kind of suspect that that may be one of the top factors on whether or not someone feels courageous enough to change their mind about something about God. It has more to do with their relationships than just like how they're processing, you know, truth in the universe or something. And so that is a very, that's a very real part of this. And that's why I go back to the fact my parents, while we were living in another country, And coming alongside our Mozambican friends as they planted churches, you know, trying to figure out how do we follow Jesus together. My parents also were participating in church planting stateside. And so they didn't just like love me really well as a child. They have continued to model learning in their adulthood, which I think is really rare. And I wish it was true um, in more places. Uh, I think that the social aspect, the relational aspect is is a big part of why people change their minds or not. I think I'd like to name your, your uh, I appreciate you pointing out the range of conversations that some of these conversations sound academic and ta- technical and some of these conversations get really practical. You know, we're talking with people who don't have the academic terminology and we're moving back and forth in those spaces. Part of what needs to be unlearned, in my opinion, in most versions 
of evangelical faith. Again, right now I'm talking about the theology side, not the political side, though they are connected. Ends up being talked about with these like complicated labels like atonement and hermeneutics and, and epistemology. <laughs> but they're these complicated words. But the thing is, everybody has one. Everybody that grew up in anything closely related to conservative Protestantism has been taught an atonement theory. Everyone has been taught been given a set of hermeneutics expectations for scripture. Everyone has been taught epistemology. Like this is how you know what you know is epistemology. How you decide who you're going to listen to, what story about God is your filter for whether or not you decide you're going to listen to a, a new idea or, or not. So what we were shifting as we learned for us first, we learned a better story about God first. And what that meant was we had the atonement theories that we had been given. Those were shifted. We had been taught what we had been taught was gospel. What we had been taught was the story that we were being invited into was not gospel. It was one atonement theory that um, one version only goes back about 500 years. Another version goes back about a thousand years, but they it's anachronistic to put those atonement theories back onto the first century into the mouth of, of Jesus or Paul. And so um, we had to unlearn those atonement theories. And the way we did that was by learning about the history of those ideas and then finding our way into a bigger story with God that has resurrection and new creation at the center. I can remember reading N.T. Wright's book, Surprised by Hope, and I'm only in like chapter two or three and I'm weeping. I'm just crying and I haven't even finished the book yet because I had this overwhelming sense of it really is a better story than I had been told. Instead of a hell-centered, you know, story that uses fear to motivate people. And, and now we can also have the conversation that causes trauma. Not only is it just not true, not only is it a bad interpretation of scripture, it also causes trauma in people. That kind of evangelism causes trauma. It also produces, ends up producing a lot of bad behavior in churches by some people who ironically are doing it kind of for good reasons. They're being faithful to the story they were given but they're being faithful to the wrong story. And so shifting the things that we had been told about atonement, letting the resurrection become the center of what might actually be good news. Uh, the idea, the claim that death has been uh, defeated, that is good news that I am willing to risk on. And so that over time, again, I'm summarizing learning journeys for me that took years. Uh, the idea that God is willing to risk being murdered. God is willing to risk being lynched by the religious and political powers uh, that were that were in power in the first century uh, in order to defeat death. And, and open the possibility of resurrection, not just for humans, but maybe for the whole cosmos, that we are in a, a new creation story. And um, that is a completely different story than I was told as a kid. And so weirdly, 
once someone offers that story to someone who was raised in a conservative church, they use the same scriptures to help them realize that you're in a different story, but they were using the same scriptures that were used to teach them the other story, you know, the hell centered uh, evangelistic story of their childhood church. And so uh, that's really hard for people. A lot of people do have a develop, I would call this a developmental need. A lot of people do have some sort of season where they have to walk away from scripture for a few years. Um, and that's not something that I hear any like church leaders really talking about, but I actually think it is part of the process. And some of them walk away from scripture completely for a while. Some of them put it on the shelf, you know, uh, internal shelf for a while. Some folks end up, can end up shortening that season by getting a different translation or uh, reading the NRSV and the message and the new living translation and the, the voice and the source and all these, there's a lot of uh, paraphrases and translations. Um, sometimes that's enough for people to just hear it in, in different words. Uh, I am still meeting a lot of people who have, I'm talking about church people who have never heard the resurrection centered new creation story and they have never met that God. And so weirdly, there are a lot of people who I think call themselves Christians and have grown up in church, but have only heard the hell centered story that uses fear to motivate people. And so it really is a conversion level event to step into a new story. And that to me, that's just weighty. It's not small. I don't think it's something often that can be done in a day or a weekend or a semester. I think it's a gift pastorally to walk alongside someone for months or years to go through that because it is jarring. It is jarring to feel like, wait, I was told I was one of the insiders growing up in church who had privileged access to this story that we're supposed to go take this story out to everyone else who's in the dark and to find out that like, oh no, we had the wrong story. Like that takes so much humility. And unfortunately, I humility is missing in a lot of church leaders and preachers that that I hear. They that comes along with that, like they've got to preach this health-centered story and they've got to do it with this uh, tone and posture of of certainty that I have just seen turn into arrogance and and so many settings where depending on how many years a person has been preaching from the pulpit or or teaching as a bible professor and to be able to say oh no i have been teaching the wrong story for 5 years for 30 years like i'm not meeting very many people who have enough sense of love and care from their community or, or enough humility to step into what I think could be a move of joy that God is better than we had been told. And that is still what's breaking my heart is how many church leaders I'm seeing who aren't making that leap. But I am meeting so many college students and like church members who are navigating that shift 
with joy. You know, I, I thought I would be doing most of my work this last five years, once we moved back to the U.S., I thought I'd be doing most of my work with college students, and I have been. But the surprising part is how many 30-somethings and 40-somethings that are coming to find me and coming to find my husband and like, can I ask you a question? You know, and they often will kind of say it in like a hushed voice, like they think they're going to be overheard by the gatekeeper types in, in their in their communities. That has been a ministry of joy to come alongside people in that space and go as slow or as fast as as they need. And you know, one 30-something adult, you know, has said to me, you know, Rachel, when you talk about God, I feel like I can believe in God again, you know, like those kinds of experiences with people, but it very much has felt to Alan and I, like we are doing this at the edges. We are doing this at the margins, the people that have the microphones that have the academic chairs very largely, uh, in the circles uh, that that we're in are are not doing this work. And I don't say that from a place of anger so much as like deep grief. People are hurting in churches. A lot have already walked away for these reasons. And the ones that haven't walked away often don't know where to go with their questions. But they maybe do have this sense of like, God is still there and they they don't want to give up on God, but they don't know where to go to find resources. I want to ask you a question about that because I think what you're saying is obviously very applicable, not not just in general, but as you know, personally, like you're resonating with, with me and I'm sure a lot of other people who, who have, have gone through a lot of those stages. And, you know, right now I'm not sure what to think of the Bible. And we talked about that. Um, and we're, and I think the more immediate question I'd like to ask you is around what, it, what the modern church, what the organization of church looks like. Because what you're talking about in a lot of context is we in our society have given literal power, uh, and not just, you know, figurative, but like literal power to an organization with resources that allow for these conversations, allow for people to have a job, not for people to have to make a living inside the world that we live in, which is important. Because it's not just, this isn't a penny university where we're waxing poetic in a coffee shop. I mean, there's people, those leaders you're talking about uh, that are on the at the pulpit. And I remember interviewing people on my old podcast, and I've just read so many others, and I'm sure you have too. And the people, especially in this world, if you will, around deconstruction, the Jared Biases and the Pete Ends and the people like that will tell you, and the, and the Brian Zons and, and, and Brad Jersax who we've had on, will tell you, they get preachers all the time that will reach out to them saying, Hey, I'm, I am in that. I am struggling with that, but I can't, I can't bring that up on Sunday. I can't say that on Sunday because then literal funding, like I won't be, I'll be on the street. I'll be homeless. I'll be without a job and not just without a job, but a, a career or even an identity. Like they've built this 30 year identity that you're talking about, not just in a personal level, but it's, it's, they've sold books. They have given, they do conferences. They have social and actual financial capital involved in that theory, in that mindset. And so by breaking, so if you go away from that, what do you have? It's like leaving a political party. If, if, you know, if you're kind of pot committed, as we say, if you ever play uh, poker or something like that. So in, in, 
lieu of all that, how do you reimagine or how would you can how do you look at church? Like we say church all the time. It's one of the things I remember way back there's an episode on Nomad with Brian Zani he's talking about the church and I kept thinking in my head, it's pretty broad. Like you're talking about I mean the church is massive. I mean tens of thousands of denominations and just and like you said, even within something like a church of Christ, you'd have twenty of them in a row and twenty different versions of it, let alone Totally, yeah. Right. Let alone They're all different. Right, all different. And so how does and I know you have, you know, planted churches, and not, and we we hear that. But can you tell us a little bit about like what in what you try to do within the confines of the world that we live in, but also within the within the context of trying to to create a place where somebody can go and feel like I can sit over here and go, I don't know if God exists, but you can still be welcome and love and have grace and in a in a place at the table, um, versus either either toe the company line or you're out which is what a lot of organizations that have. So, and I say organization, meaning the modern you know, church. Right. And that happens. I have seen that happen in some pretty sour and nasty ways. Toe the line and you're out. I'm also seeing it in some charming and polite ways. And so I just want to name that, that both of those things are happening. There are uh, pretty nasty rejections that that happen when you don't tow the party line and there's also a syrupy neglect that that can also happen i think part of how i navigate that is i when i first went back to school i got a master's degree in historical theology so just having the historical perspective it doesn't solve the problem but it really does help to give context to be aware that this has happened before you know change the details of which bad theology needs to be unlearned, but this has happened before. And so, and that's not necessarily, it doesn't feel like good news at first. Like the church has imploded before in different parts of the world and other centuries. That doesn't sound like good news. You know, what what is wrong and, and bad and hurtful will get thrown off will get or surgically removed or or rejected by by responsible people and something new will be reborn it has happened uh, change the details but it has happened before in other centuries so um there's a phyllis tickle is someone i know she's was interviewed on the nomad podcast as well before she passed away but um her perspective has been important to me as a historical theologian that like we all need to be remembering that change is always happening. And so there's no static plateau where we will, we have ever or will finally arrive at like perfect. We had now have full understanding of everything about God. There never has been and there never will be. And so that's a major thing to unlearn, like for sure from, from the denomination that raised me, the idea that we don't have it all right and we never will, that we need to build within ourselves the capacity in ourselves and hopefully plant seeds in for the capacity of our great grandchildren to be able to change their minds about God because uh, to sort of hopefully do something that will prevent the arrogance of our great grandchildren from assuming they have God figured out. So that was a detour. Phyllis Tickle has this kind of painted this picture of 
things are always changing. Things have always been changing, but you can also look back through, you know, the broad definition of church history, all the branches of the family tree and can sort of like name every 500 years, a bigger shift. And so that has been helpful to me as I look around and see which churches are changing, which churches are not, which churches are still learning, which churches are not, and that we are going through a 500 year shift. You know, 500 years ago, there were major reforms happening, not just, you know, the Protestant Reformation is kind of a misnomer. There was reform happening on multiple sides of, of things for the, you know, medieval European uh, imperial church. 500 years before that, you have the great schism, you know, between the East and the West. And so um, having the historical mindset really matters to me. Like if you go back even further around the fall of the Roman empire and before that, you had whole groups of people who were leaving the cities because of how corrupt city churches had become as they were um, more closely wedded to the government structures. And so whole groups of people were moving out into the desert. And that's where we get uh, some of our resources from that time period. And it happened in more than one generation. And so I think that is part of what helps me connect to history, but also to the future. I cannot predict all the details of what what is next will look like, but I know that there will be a next. Uh, hanging on to that, the the versions that are so wedded with power and money that they won't change their minds about anything. Yes, they have the larger microphones. Yes, they have the salaries and and the retirement funds, and that is is real. But that will not be the version that makes it to what is reborn uh, for our grandchildren. And so um, this is not hypothetical for me. You know, I have talked to leader types who have told me, I am sorry, I am not going to risk for you because of how close I am to retirement. You know, when they say I'm 62. I'm not going to risk like you're asking me to. That has broken my heart because it's not just about asking them to risk on my behalf. There are whole groups of people there keeping in the dark uh, because they won't risk. And, and, and that is, I think risk is the question. Well, so I, I just, because that's, I think a good segue into a quick, a uh, little bit of an anecdotal experience with you personally, but also something that I think is important relative to that. Because when you're talking about something like that, I grew up uh, going to the church of anger and frustration. That was where, that's what I was worshipped in. That's what I was taught as a child by by my father and and by society, at, you know, at, at large, if you, will, if you will. And something that, you, that I experienced with you personally, that I've spent a lot of years trying to undo, undo that reaction because it hasn't, hasn't, hasn't served me well, to be honest, and um, continues not to serve me well. But you said to me, because I, I asked you, like, something like that situation, somebody says something like that, or somebody says to you the comment that we came across when you were down here interviewing, and you told our team about, you'd gone through all this just learned and, and all this other good stuff, and somebody said to you, um, well, you're going to make a great elder's wife one day, and kind of just dis, really just dis, dismissed 
your own agency and your own, you know, who you are unto yourself, that you are in part of that. And in our reaction, again, it's justified and it's celebrated in our culture is to get angry at that person. Be like, you worthless, you know what, how, you know, you're not going to have the courage to do this. You're going to, you're going to sell out and do all this other stuff and to get mad and the incredible Hulk kind of stuff. And it becomes this sort of that. And you told me, that really what's behind that? Because I asked you, like, what do you do? Like, how do you not get it? I asked you, how do you not get mad, Rachel? And you said, because really what's behind that is sadness. And that comment has sat with me since you told me that. And I was actually having to think about this conversation yesterday. What I realized too, and I'd love for you to expand upon this and whatever else comes to mind around it, is that when I start to look at things now from a sadness point of view rather than a madness, getting mad, which is a bit which is madness as well. I realize that there's no damage. And that, that when I get angry and when I've gotten angry, it comes with damage. It has to be trauma, if you will, or whatever. Something something is is broken, if you will, externally and internally. But when it when you sit in the sadness of it, it doesn't cost anybody anything, really. That kind of came to me recently. So I don't know if that makes any sense. Uh, but kind of help us walk through when you have that moment. And we're going to have this, as you said, it's it, this idea that we're going to, you know, that, you know, I, as you know, we went through uh, to get my master's in clinical mental health counseling to become a therapist. And the idea that you're going to tell somebody, hey, the goal is for you to never get mad. Like, good luck. Like, you're going to. It's going to come. These emotions are going to come. Being a human is going to be part of that. But how do you equip? Like, what do you, how do you help people understand themselves in the situation? And to, and, to, and to sit with all of that and do something with it besides go cause more damage, which doesn't help anybody. Right. I feel like there's two parts to the question you just asked. One, you know, depending on the specifics of the person I'm talking to, obviously navigating that there is deep grief when church has failed you, when the people that were held up as the spiritual leaders in your community turn out not to be that like that has so much grief attached to it and that we can't um a lot of times shifting to anger is when i'm denying the grief so in in my part a, a huge formative thing for me early early on before I could have an articulate sentence put together about any of these things that we have been talking to talking about, I have been reading the prophets, the Hebrew prophets at the end of the Hebrew Bible, some people call it Old Testament. I have been reading the prophets for a very long time, even before I could have conversations like you and I are having now. And that has really formed me. I think deeply on the inside in places where there aren't words, you know, the agony that the prophets name with God. Sometimes the prophets are taking the words of God to the people and it's agony. God is broken hearted at their rejection of, of God, at their rejection of justice, at their rejection of the poor. And sometimes the prophets are, are bringing their, their own agony into uh, their writing. Like, God, how can this have happened to our community? And so I just think it's really relevant and 
I've just met very few uh, preachers who uh, preach from the prophets or if they do, it's usually got some, unfortunately, some like anti-Semitism like within their interpretation. So like a discriminatory or bigoted view against Jews because they've been taught kind of that anything in the Old Testament was just like, that's just like pre-Jesus or leading up to Jesus or predicting Jesus, or it was those legalistic people. And now we have grace. And so that, again, that's all, I would say that's all just wrong. Um, It is inappropriate, uh, an inappropriate way to be taught to interpret scripture. And that's a whole other conversation that can also get really academic, but we need to be reading the prophets as, as if we are the religious professionals who are hearing the blasting words of the prophet. The We need to be it's church people that need to be reading the prophets as being on the receiving end of, of their very uh, heavy words to the people of God at the time. But what you really hear coming through that is the grief of God. It is real and it is weighty and it doesn't get fixed within the people in a day or a year or a decade and and you can also you can make the case that the prophets uh, at the end of the Hebrew Bible that what they were called to by God was a, a ministry that was going to end in failure and I think that has been really formative for how I navigate, you know, the decades and the century that that I'm in. We need to be reading the prophets to hear from the heart of God about what God feels about churches that look nothing like Jesus. So, so can I? I, w- I want to jump on something that you said because it's a bit of an off the cuff, uh, but I think it's poignant and relates to what you're saying. Many, many so often, especially in the health-centered or the good news that we that we've come to know from a, an evangelical Western interpretation of of Christianity, is focused around the idea that somehow we as people have failed God. That you know we're the fallen, we're the God had it all figured out and we screwed it up. To what you just said resonates with me right now on a personal level because the person I'm most not trying to get mad at is not a person; it's God around why this is even possible. Like, why is rape possible? Why is discrimination possible? What is the lesson in physical domination? What is the lesson in just earthly power creating situations of inequity and socioeconomic disadvantages? And why Why do we, why do we, why are we so basic in our way of looking at somebody? And we know from just basic academic research that this the way a person looks can change the way that you treat them. And that's just a human, like that's in us. And it was given to us. I didn't ask to be this way. And so my, a lot of my struggle is kind of being that, feeling that in that context, what you're just saying about this was going to fail anyway. And so I don't, I, so now I'm kind of getting mad at God in that way. And like, I'm and, and not even mad is not the right, it's just, I'm confused. Like, so what's the point? Like what, What's the point of this white knuckling of power and, and salaries and resources and being giving? I don't blame the person who's 62 for going, hey, man, I'm almost, I, I kind of get to a point where I'm going to be okay. 
because I, I got to pay taxes or else I'm on the street. The system doesn't allow me just to be myself. I got to pay bills. It doesn't care if it's December 25th or January 25th. This bill payment is due, and if not, you're done. So if I saying that, what would how would you react to something like that from a pastoral and just kind of like teaching aspect that you're so good at? Man, what you just said, I would I would tell you to go read Habakkuk. <laughs> I'm actually on a curriculum team right now that's creating a week-long retreat curriculum based on the book of Habakkuk. And Hab- the book of Habakkuk is asking the question that you just said, like, one of, one of my friends said that Habakkuk is kind of saying, what the heck, God? How is this the reality of what I'm seeing out here? The rampant injustice, the powerful are constantly exploiting the powerless. Like, how can this be the world that you've created? What are you going to do about it? I, again, I think it's the prophet's that need to be the narrating the voices in our head and also giving us a perspective for walking with Jesus because Jesus and, and the prophets are the ones that I think need to be showing us what God is really like here in the ruins at the end of empire. And, and and that this has happened before with the people of God, what, what is based in fear and power will die and fall away and that it's the faithful uh, few that that are struggling and looking for Jesus that will be responsible for carrying a more equitable and just and neighbor loving faith to the next generation. You've asked about like scripture, like what do we do with scripture? Um, A lot of us that grew up in conservative spaces were taught ways of interpreting scripture taught like this is what you in a lot of spaces I think it was modeled more than it was talked about explicitly like this is what we do with scripture and that's just what we learned and it was used to prop up the story the hell-centered story that uses fear to motivate people to give their belief and conversion experience to this God. I just want to say that like, that is traumatic. That is, that is a violent story. That is a misrepresentation a misinterpretation of scripture. Um, and that that takes time to unlearn. And it might even take some, some specific trauma centered care to um, there's a lot of resources out there about spiritual trauma, church trauma. It's all real and it, it all needs to be taken seriously. And so I'm going to answer the question of what's next, but I just really want to say that takes months and probably years. So I just don't want it to sound like I'm rushing into the next phase, but to be able to, approach the Bible again. I think this is my theory and opinion. And part of it is because that's the order of that things happen for me is I think people have to have approached a loving God again, have, have unlearned the angry hell God and have started to relearn the God that Jesus shows us that God is like Jesus is 
maybe one of the most provocative claims to make right now in conservative churches. God is like Jesus. And then eventually to be able to approach scripture again, once that different view of God and and Jesus has, has started to work some healing, to be able to eventually approach the Bible, approach scripture as this giant library of testimony. It will require some unlearning. Now, I was taught a view of the Bible as like, this is where we go to find out exactly what God wants. <laughs> and usually it was, it has to be uniformity. So then we can enforce it on other people. But that wasn't said, but that was implied in everything we do. It's because we go to the Bible to find out what God wants. And the idea of inspiration that, that, again, was not said explicitly always, but the idea that the Holy Spirit was like almost like a zombie whispering into the ear of Luke as he wrote things down, right? Like word for word. Um, that view of like dictation, inspiration. Most of the people in my community were, were holding this because that's what they were told. And they were trying to be faithful to what they were told was good. And so, again, it's still very relational to unlearn that view of scripture means they have to unlearn something that someone they loved told them. So still relational to be able to let go of that dictation model and to see this huge library of testimony. It is testimony from our ancient siblings. And I still think that, yes, I want, I want it to be robustly Trinitarian. Like I believe this crazy idea that the spirit of God, the God that Jesus shows us that spirit wants to actually inhabit the bodies of people today and people 2000 years ago and before that and every century in between. So what we're doing from a like Trinitarian perspective, when we read scripture, if I am talking to you, Sean, and I have the Holy Spirit and Sean, you have the spirit of God inside of you. This is a crazy idea, right? I just want to say, this is crazy that you might have the spirit of God in your body. And when you read the book of Luke, Luke's body is dead. But Luke, the Holy Spirit isn't dead. And Luke had the spirit of God inside of him as he wrote things down. And he was writing, he was probably being paid or commissioned by Theophilus, who had the spirit of God. And, you know, he went and talked to Mary to get down her part of the story, you know, some form. I'm not trying to say that I know exactly how it happened. I'm saying this is what, this is how testimony works. Testimony is the genre we need to be using to think about the whole library, but that Mary and Luke and Theophilus, you know, I'm just really thinking Zachariah and Elizabeth right now. I'm only thinking about Luke chapter one, right? Their bodies are dead, but though that's our ancient brothers and sisters, but the Holy Spirit isn't dead. And so when I read their testimony, I can experience, you can experience, our churches can experience, our small groups can experience somehow a, 
a living communion with our ancient siblings as we read their testimony. And so I think that's the beginning part of naming, like, what is it? (laughs) What are we doing when we read scripture? That's not the end. That is only the beginning. In my opinion, that's only like opening the door because that allows us to stretch our expectations of the different kinds of texts that we get inside that library. Of course, we're going to have different expectations for poetry than like gospel writing. And, you know, first century gospel writing, they were not trying to write history. First century gospel writers felt a lot more permission to borrow and co-opt writing styles of their time to like remix it for their own purposes. And that what that could be part of being faithful in the first century as you're writing down testimony. But it is anachronistic to put 20th century, 21st century expectations of history writing onto that. And so it allows us to begin to have more healed expectations of what we think we're doing when we're reading documents, testimony that's 2,000 years old, 2,500 years old, older, you know, in, in the Hebrew scriptures, it allows us to begin having a different relationship with our Bibles. I still want that first message to be pastoral. Um, harm has been done by that other way of using scripture. And so getting personal healing or, or, or healing in your community for the harm that's been done by people who've metaphorically had, you know, Bibles wielded as weapons at them. That is a, that's a big part of this journey. Part of uh, my learning journey has also come with increasing awareness of my own privilege. I was raised in a a wealthy, mostly white, suburban setting. And that is also important ethical work to unlearn the ways that that affected what I think about God, what I thought about God as a kid and how I read the Bible, what perspective I read myself into that I was taught to read myself into by the people that were preaching in my childhood, you know. And so that work of ethics and justice is also something that comes alongside this. And so I just want to name that, you know, those beginning stages of my unlearning and relearning journey, you know, it was all white male authors that I was reading, but there's a phrase as we try to like name the fact that colonialism has been a big part of every area that was affected by European power in the last 500 years. That includes theology and missions and biblical studies. And so to decolonize, not just countries and governments that were taken over by colonizers, but also our ideas and our philosophies and our theologies also have to be decolonized. And so part of my journey has then been to, I need to learn from my brothers and sisters of color. And that is such a gift. And, you know, it's trying to undo 
the the very small story that I was raised with and, and learning my way into the larger stories of people that I didn't know were my neighbors, you know, when I was younger and trying to figure out what it means to be a global citizen following uh, this provocative Jesus in the world today. And so um, a really helpful perspective. Uh, I've heard Esau McCauley say this. I've heard Brian Stevenson name something similar to this. But Esau McCauley said, I think that slavery will always be with us. I was taught this white privileged version of the last 200 years of history that like, look, that was slavery back then and we fixed it. Well, then we did have this civil rights movement, but, but, but look, we fixed it. And so, you know, I had to do my own work and unlearn those lies and go out there and read. And so Esau Macaulay's perspective is no, it will only just evolve. It will never go away. The groups that are in power trying to preserve power for just their small group, that will never go away. It has always been happening and it is going to happen again. So whatever version of patriarchy or white supremacy that we're seeing now, I need to shift my expectations, not just to how do we fix this and end this, but we also need to be training our our children to expect to have to creatively engage some form of like, you know, colonialism or supremacy that I don't even know about yet. And so that's the kind of work we need to do, be doing in churches as we relearn, unlearn uh, late enlightenment, you know, 19th century versions of faith, relearn this radical Jesus and the God that Jesus shows us and the spirit that is offered to be inside of anyone and also be in our teaching and in our training and in our churches, be creating, uh, cultivating this radical humility so that our grandchildren will be quicker to spot the powers of evil, the powers of supremacy in in their generation. But it's going to be the Jesus that teaches us to risk that, that allows us to do that. Faith is not certainty. Faith is is risk. And so the Jesus that shows us a God who wants to defeat death in order to be with God's children, that is a God, that is a story to risk. My thought when you were saying that before about what could be in the future, I thought it might be tried at first, but then I think it also might have some merit as, you know, I think about generative AI, I think about chat GPT, I think about if you had this database of knowledge and understanding and you asked this impersonal algorithmic computation of things like what will that look like i wonder what that what they would say i also wonder if maybe that's not it i think about you talking about the 500 year evolution revolution in a world that i know a bit about in terms of where we're headed what that's going to be like those challenges and this it's going to be an interesting time no matter when it is uh but time is something that we don't uh well we have a lot of it it is it, 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 it has its own nuance and regrettably these kinds of conversations uh, have a beginning and have an end 
So before I go and do the the big plane landing, as I'm trying to figure out how to land all this, given the context, where in the proverbial question at the end of all podcast episodes, those that have been listening, I, I have a lot of trust that they are like, hey, you know, I'd like to hear Rachel say some more. So if people want to know where you're at, what you're doing, how to get a hold of you or engage with the work that you're doing, where can they find you? Um, right now, the best place to find me is on Substack. And the name of my Substack is uh, Go Out in Joy. You can find me there, Rachel Howell, and there will be uh, more to come this year. But Substack will be the place to find it. Very cool. And I'm going to take you up on your um, recommendation of Habakkuk. The last time a howl uh, told me to read a book in the Bible was the first time I ever read it in earnest was uh, Mark Howell, who you know as well. Uh, and it was uh, another Old Testament book, coincidentally, um, Ecclesiastes. And so I always tell people that the beginning of my faith journey was not in the New Testament or in the or in the Gospels. It was it was Ecclesi- it was Ecclesiastes that got me interested in this formalized part of the journey. So I, th- I find it um, interesting to say the least that the other recommendation is still in the Old Testament, not in the New Testament. So um, looking forward to that and what that may bring, because it's been a while, to be honest with you, since I picked it up in earnest uh, for all kinds of reasons. That said, as I mentioned in the beginning uh, of the episode previous, this is the, the desire here is that those that are listening drew something from this and are able to, to empower themselves along their journeys, along their strat- struggles and, and things that they're dealing with. And that, and that all the work that we've been doing here has been in that spirit. Um, it has been, I know that's been at Chris's heart and it definitely been at Stephen's heart. And if we have been able to do that, then, then we've done okay. I think we've done okay. And, uh, and I try to think about um, what all this means and what it will continue to mean. Um, hopefully it means something to all of you, but it has meant the world to me to be able to be a part of this. And I thank you for your time to listen. And I thank uh, Rachel for coming on and being the last guest on my um, contribution to this. And while sad that it's over, I'm very much, we'll see what the next chapter brings. And and I, and that that's where the faith comes in that she was just talking about that it's, and, and it's okay. It's okay to be uncertain. It's okay to not know uh, what may come, even though we want to, right? <laughs> we want to be certain. We want to know. I want to know it's going to be okay. Uh, it is, but it isn't. And and sitting in that makes me think of uh, Janet Williams and Apophatic and just and Alexander and others that have just said it's 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 a, you got to sit with that that discomfort and it's going to be okay. So with that, as we land this plane, proverbially speaking, again, thank you so much. Thank you, Rachel, and thank all of you for listening all these years and. Uh, Looking forward to the next chapter. Love you guys. I love Stephen, love Chris, and all the work that we've done. And again, take care. God bless, and we'll we'll see you again soon. Thank you for listening. Thanks to David Backhouse for the theme tune, and to Chris Marchand for editing and all the other music. This show only exists because of support from listeners like you. If you have found something we made to be useful, please consider becoming a patron at the Tent Talks Patreon page or leave a good review on whichever podcast platform you use to listen. This really helps. For more information, visit www.tenttheology.com.